0: Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest in my home on this beautiful summer day is my friend, Jody england Hansen. Welcome to the podcast, Jody.
1: Thank you, Richard. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Um, about six years ago, when I stepped in the space of trying to better support LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, there were some people already in this space that were active LDS and saying kind things about gay people. And Jody was one of those. And I realize um, Jody's mentoring to me in this space and in my life has been very helpful. There's others, but I recognize I could be a committed Latter-day Saint and support LGBTQ people. And so I'd like to publicly thank Jody for her good influence in my life um, and the wonderful woman she is. And this podcast, having her on the podcast is probably five years overdue. Um, should have had her on the podcast multiple times, but I just kept this, getting this impression to reach out to Jody um, to have her tell part of her story, but also to talk about her father, um, Eugene England, who is somebody six years ago I didn't know and um, somebody that passed away in 2021. That's 20-
1: no, 20, 2001.
0: Two thousand one, so that's twenty one years ago, yes. and that's Jody's father. A couple biographies biographies have been written about him that have come out last year. We're going to talk about those. Um, but he is just an incredible member of our faith community. and um, these biographies and Jody's stories about him will honor him honor him. But the real reason I want to do this podcast is there may be younger members of our church, millennials, Gen Zs, Gen X, I guess there's two Gens, if I can keep strict.
1: For now, For I'm sure now. there are more.
0: <laughs> um, that may lean a little more liberal, a little more progressive, um, and just may feel tension as Latter-day Saints and some of the issues you face. And I realize there's been people that have walked this road long before I've walked this road or long before you've walked this road that need Um, the long view of somebody like Jody and her father to help you navigate this road with the current issues you're addressing as Latter-day Saints. And so that's our hope is that bringing um, Eugene's story to you and his two biographies, as well as Jody's own story as a committed Latter-day Saint, that will help you as you're making your way forward. And if you're um, somebody that's not feeling any tension or any concerns, that you may be listening to this podcast, La Tools, or better insights to understand why some deeply committed Latter-day Saints do have concerns and tension at times within our faith and to create space for them and to value their opinions and feelings, and that's part of creating Zion. Is that okay for an introduction?
1: Yes, that sounds great.
0: So I will just, um, a couple things we'll link to in the podcast. There's two biographies that will come up, one written by Christine Hagland one written by Terrell Givens, both about Eugene England. We'll link to both of those so that you can check out those books. If you'd like to buy them. The other thing we'll link in, I'm sure Jody will talk about this is EugeneEngland.org, which is a one-stop place for all of um, Eugene's work. And so I encourage you to check out that and we'll talk about that during the podcast. But with, for that, I'll just turn it over to Jody to start sharing your story.
1: Uh, thank you, Richard. Um... I I'm used to on podcasts kind of following questions so th- so just kind of break in uh anytime you want me to redirect but uh, your request to just kind of share some of my childhood often people will uh it, when they come to me and say how is it that you can sit with these contraries how is it that you can sit with this dissonance and I guess it's really the way I saw my whole life, people doing that, that there is no such thing as a place where you will not experience humanity. You will not experience dissonance. You will not come up against contrary things where you thought it would be one way, but people behave or things turn out a different way. And, um, and that is so integrally linked to uh, my experience as a LDS, my Mormon experience, my heritage, um, all of that has always been very complex. It was never whitewashed. It was never presented as, um, you are descended from pioneers and they were all wonderful and perfect and you should be like them. Um, every story about family included uh, ridiculous things and noble things. And every understanding, every discussion about church history was complex. You know, there was this acknowledgement that uh, Joseph Smith made huge mistakes, and that he also revealed incredible conversations and questions, and that there were so many people involved in that process. And some of those things spoke to me from a very young age. And I think part of it was um, that I had parents, and and I'll speak very specifically about Dad who had from early years himself seen and wrestled with deeply powerful, inspiring aspects that came about because he was asking questions because of the model of our restoration. And also, wait a minute, how how does that fit in? And so wrestling... With dissonance was really the water we swam in. And um, not that it, it, it is ever easy. I don't think it's supposed to be. And um, it, one of the essays that is one of my favorites that is on eugeneengland.org is his last published essay. It's The Weeping God of Mormonism. And um, this experience of seeking. And and having a relationship with a God that weeps for us, a God that loves us so completely that it's not that they are not mourning because we sin, but that we hurt each other, and that there is not uh, uh, any aspect of God that would impose their will to stop us, but that they will still sit with us and weep with us in the midst of that. It's a really compelling aspect of seeking uh, some kind of a
2: divine presence and being that we follow. And inevitably,
1: humanity is going to find a way to package it and market it in a way that's easy and understandable or compels us to be a certain way. And I think one of the most amazing things, and, and I love that from early on, this is a very big part, is the, one of the most revealing things we have in the Doctrine and Covenants is that conversation that God has in Section 121, where they're saying, you want me
2: to, to take revenge on those who are hurting you. We don't work that way. We can't. The only
1: way God's power works is through love and persuasion and compassion. And the moment, not eventually, but the moment anyone is doing anything through force or intimidation or uh, revenge or fear, that is not God. And in that sense, it's attached to the power of the priesthood in, in God's work on the earth. And I think a lot of times we turn to the human aspect of that rather than the God aspect of that. and And that was such a big part of what is linked to things that draw me to this restoration gospel is um, our our discussions like that from an early time. Um, I think I really appreciated the way Dad uh, respected. Uh, me from an early age he taught me how to read with the Book of Mormon and that's not an easy thing to do a parent to sit with a child and work out how the words sound and inevitably I went from sounding out the words to going wait a minute what does that mean so even at a young age there was never a well I'll tell you what it means and then you won't have asked questions about it it was more like what do you think that is saying and if it was saying something where where it didn't make much sense there was never a well this is the way god works it's like well there are a lot of other people involved in this do you think maybe they're saying something about themselves more than they are about god and so from an early age this understanding any community, any faith community, any political, any family, it involves humans. And, and to never assume that just because something is in the scriptures or being said at conference, this is what God would say more along the lines of this is where God asks us to wrestle with finding how people are trying to work through this journey and, um, and that he was fine when it was hard. I could say, well, that, I don't like that. And, and he could say, yeah, and, and you don't need to believe anything about God that suggests God doesn't love everyone. And um, so when there were things that said that were suggesting people with skin color, people who um, didn't agree with Nephi or something were somehow inherently evil, There was never the question that God actually felt that way. It was more, wow, this is a story about wrestling. This is a story about people trying to justify themselves. This is a valuable thing to study. And um, while I see many people really struggle because they think it has to be completely true and they have to believe it before they'll find value in it, I appreciate learning that the value is in the wrestle that you can sit in church next to someone that you know you would be yelling at at a political rally, holding different picket signs. But you are both there trying to find God in your life. And that's part of the wrestle. Can you serve together to feed people who are hungry, even though you vote very differently? I don't always do well with that. But even um, dad took me to my first political rally. He, to him, activism is inherently connected to faith and dedication to Christ. And um, so he took me to my first rally when I was eight and he'd, he'd have my siblings and and me pass out flyers and canvas neighborhoods even before then. And this was in the 60s in the Bay Area. He was at Stanford and taught at Berkeley as well. And. And uh, but basically it was if you saw a problem, especially if, if it concerned discrimination or injustice for others, as a follower of Christ, you needed to heed a call to do something and make a difference. and so that was very much a part of things um, from an early age. and they were always um, they were just one of many in in the community that would host regular discussions and firesides in their home that was so prevalent and was until there was a statement and I won't mention names, but suggesting that that was wrong, but that was always going on. And some of the people who would talk at those firesides are now general authorities. Some, some of their children are now general authorities. And this was really a big part, you know, the discussions and they were Dynamic and, and it wasn't about agreement. It wasn't about um, this, is, everyone has to feel this way. So um, that was a big part of my childhood that there, is, uh, there are contraries, there are paradoxes, and that we're all experiencing it or avoiding it, um, dealing with consequences either way. Um, and I saw him wrestle. Um, I think a big example is, uh, is uh, LGBTQ issues because very early on uh, there were students and family members and loved ones that came to him for counsel and direction and he didn't always know what to say. And he, he was, uh, for a while, he was trying to work this out like almost like trying to to reconcile something, and he wrote about it. But what he was writing about just couldn't reconcile the contradictions. And um, something that I appreciate is, uh, and this happened only a few years before he died. He and I were flying to Seattle. He was going up to speak at the affirmation conference there. I was going up to help my sister um, who had a new baby. And we were on the plane, and he had me read his his address, and and I I had been reading things over the years. We had loved ones who were gay, and and had been you know a part of our lives, and and out for many years at that point. But um, he he was still trying to somehow find a way to reconcile uh, this, you know there was no way for someone who is gay to completely live a fulfilled life according to what he truly saw as crucial, you know, that, that we can have someone we love in our lives, that we can have a committed relationship, that we can have a family. And, and, um, and he was trying, he, he kept re addressing it. And, and, and I remember reading it and he was still trying to somehow justify there not being a path to an acknowledged marriage and and kind of still compartmentalize it in a way that that would somehow reconcile that. And I remember looking at him and at that point
2: I I just I said, Dad, do you really think God is expecting this? And and
1: I really appreciated because I I knew I could say that to dad and he'd listen. Um There were many times in discussions and, and some, somebody, one of us would say, no, I, I just, do you really, do you really think this is how it is? And it was like this phrase that would bring dad back to going, am I going with dogma or am I really willing to look at this? And he he had apparently some pretty fascinating discussions at that conference and he started writing differently about it and acknowledging that this was not an answer to say, you will be lonely. You need to deal with this um, cross. And uh, so I appreciate him being willing to say, I have been wrong. I, I'm looking at this more. I, don't know what we do with this, but this is not working. So um, that was, that was an interesting time. And and I still wonder what would have happened if he had lived longer, how, how would he, he have addressed this and what would he have done um, with this? I think it's interesting how um, members, there were members and leaders, church leaders that really loved him, really honored, um, this extraordinary faith of his, but others had no idea what to think. And unfortunately, the only thing they could think of was to try to silence him and remove him. Um, The same year he was awarded professor of the year at BYU, there were also efforts by someone else to have him removed. And um, he was actually told by a high level administrator that it was nothing that he he hadn't said or done anything. That was of concern, but they were worried that he could say or do something that would concern them. So they wanted to get rid of him. And um, finally, he, he did. He ended up retiring unwillingly from BYU and he went to UVU and he worked really hard and won an unprecedented grant to start the first Mormon Studies program. All the Mormon Studies programs came after that. He started the first one and he had been... He had been trying for decades at BYU to do that. But UVU is, is where he was able to do that and uh, just not long before he died. So um, I learned from that. You know, it's just, this is... Doing what you feel led to do is not a popularity contest and it's definitely not something where you, you have to focus on getting agreement. Sometimes you just focus on what you're committed on. And I think... Um, Especially seeing that those things, those types of interactions, could occur anywhere—academia, um, church, activism, family—anywhere. This is not a Mormon problem. This, this was something where I learned early. You know, people said, "Well, just why do you stay connected where something like this happens?" And and it's going to happen everywhere. It really is. And learning how to live with the contraries, with the dissonance, with uh, without needing agreement before you make a difference but just seeing that that it can happen um i wrote uh an essay and it's on org. it's called a pope story and i wrote it not long after a few years after his death in um he passed away in 2001 of brain cancer and um it was really uh my expression of realizing how he um the way he made a difference is he created really big problems. So that centered about an event that occurred in 1981. He was one of the directors of a BYU study abroad program in London. And part of it, uh, part of that six months there, we had your rail pass. So we traveled around Europe and we were in Rome for a few days and, um, and, uh, before we were going to get on the train to go to Switzerland, one last thing in Rome is we went to the uh, St. Peter's and the uh, piazza there to listen to the Pope give an address. This is Pope John Paul II. And uh, something that we had been watching, this is when solidarity was going on. And Pope John Paul II, being Polish, he was kind of the spiritual leader of this nonviolent resistance. To the the communist leaders in Poland, and um, there had been a lot of pressure uh, on the Solidarity movement, and um, we were there listening, ready to listen to the Pope give an address, and uh, gathered in the square. and And uh, I was Dad would kind of put me in charge of some of the students before we'd get on the uh, train, and and we were gathered in the center, and people had been all over Rome, and they were tired and sitting down on the steps. And I had climbed up on top of one of these pillars to get a good view. And dad said, I'm going to go up and try to get closer. And he, he had a way of doing that. (laughs) And and, um, uh, the Pope came out, drove around in his, in the Jeep facing inward and then drove around again, facing outward before he was going to give, his talk. And as he was coming around and I was, I, I could kind of see him over the crowd. All of a sudden I heard these pops and then he kind of disappeared and there was panic everywhere. And wow. this is when he had was shot. And, uh, the students sitting around me and my siblings and mom, they kind of looked up and I said, I think someone shot the Pope. And, and I saw the gunman run off to the side and the people running after him the jeep the Pope's jeep took off and there was all this confusion and so we waited there there was an announcement that some people in the crowd had also been shot and and all of a sudden we looked at each other and we said where's dad and um and it was really moving to me because i saw like there were nuns there that were just weeping uncontrollably and i realized how important, you know, and, and crucial a moment like this was. And then dad was there and the tip of his finger was bleeding and the side of his head was inflamed. And like right at the moment he had his hand outstretched and the Pope was, you know, reaching out the gun, the, the bullet went past dad's temple and um, clipped the end of his finger before it entered um the pope and and um wow so it's really you know it was really impactful but what dad took from that is he kind of strongly felt that the KGB was behind this they were trying to remove this spiritual inspiration from this nonviolent resistance and that there was a need and what he saw was needed is support for the people who are trying to change the world and when we went back to Provo here here he is this professor at a conservative university in a conservative county and he wanted to find a way to send support to people in Poland and the only thing he could think of is feed them and to him it wasn't we need to do this so we can get them to join the church. It was like, we need to do this because this is what Christ would do. They are trying to live their life. They're trying to live it without this constant control and they need food. And in the resistance um, of trying to negotiate something, what was happening is they were being denied everything in in Poland. And um, so he started something called Food for Poland. We didn't have money. He didn't know anyone. Um, he just started talking. He just, and he kept inviting people to see that this could make a difference in the world. And over time he got, uh, he got celebrity and endorsements, but you know, not a lot of donations, but people would do everything from bringing a can of milk to, to donate a thousand dollars. Then he started talking to church leaders and government leaders. And for the first time, that we know of the church cooperated with the Catholic church to try to send shipments. Then he started talking to people in, in the church to start uh, uh, looking for ways that humanitarian services could be ready to mobilize when there was a need in another part of the world. And, um, and it made a difference there. And so humanitarian services shifted uh some of the things they were doing and that he he just he saw that something could be done and he kept telling people about this big problem provide food so people can create a good life for themselves without using guns and um that's a big problem but it's also an inspiring problem too often people won't go beyond problems of how am i going to get a nicer car (laughs) And uh, that's their biggest problem. But when you, when you create really huge problems, you become inspired, and other people want to be a part of that. And um, so, not that many years later, when that wall was torn down, that was a huge deal. Um, I remember sometimes being on the extension line when dad was talking to leaders of solidarity and, and saying, What is it you need the most? and hearing them talk about what was happening.
2: I realized this is this is the path to godhood. Um, invite people into really huge, huge things, and um, that's how Dad changed the world. Uh, there are so many
1: mormon publications that he he started or had his hand in there are so many the mormon studies programs and also writings in english literature journals that he wrote when he was teaching at saint olaf college in minnesota this is a lutheran college and students would come up and say i've never had a teacher like you you're asking me to pray about the books i'm reading to see how I can be inspired by great literature. I've never had a teacher ask me this. And um, so letting go of thinking that it can only happen in a certain way, I was deeply inspired at a young age by the 13th article of faith. Um, That's pretty cool to see that it doesn't matter where it comes from, but if it's virtuous, lovely, or good, reporter, praiseworthy, it doesn't need an official stamp on it. We're the ones who can recognize where that is, and then we can do something about it. And this was Dad doing that over and over. And um, while uh, you know, he was not perfect or anything, but it was pretty amazing to be have him uh, as a mentor, I think something that that's been interesting, seeing um, publications about him, you know, these uh, biographies, but also You know, things have been written off off and on about him over the years.
2: And uh, to see how sometimes even people who really admired him,
1: they don't know what to do with why he did it the way he did. And um, I've actually heard uh, people suggest that he was naive uh, to think that he, he could keep Suggesting or working, trying to work with church authorities when, especially a few of them, were really making life difficult for him. It just would not listen and and criticizing him, even threatening him. And um, dad was not naive. Uh, It's hard to understand how deeply committed he was. Because he was. He was deeply committed and dedicated to the gospel of Jesus Christ. and. The work that he saw could be done uh, by the church in the world. He deeply committed and constantly sought direction and inspiration and, and wisdom in in how to do it and even if others were afraid of that or didn't respond to it, it did not change that. And so him constantly trying To make a difference through official channels as well as through his writings, that was not naivete. It it just wasn't. It was it was commitment. And um, again, I learned from that. Uh, I I've been a part of advocacy groups that have gone from being very dedicated to saving lives to shifting over to being more dedicated to branding and and getting donations and sometimes you have to realize, okay, I will, this does not mean that I have to stop doing what I feel led to do and find other channels to do it. Um, he never gave up on that. That was, that really was, uh, well, it's, it's something that I experienced, um, not long before we moved from Colorado back to here, uh, a, a, leader who had been, we had served right next to for 10 years and, and, uh, he had been really appreciative and, and seemed to be led by inspiration and something had made him afraid. And, um, he, he really used every bit of his position to
2: try to control, um, control, uh, a, a, a situation where we really
1: were creating a space for people whose lives depended on it. And he didn't want that. And, and it's devastating. Um, it was really devastating. And, uh, but these moments with God that I had, where I just felt God sitting with me, not justifying anything, not telling me I had to do anything, just sitting with me
2: and my pain and feeling of betrayal. And I realized the Dad experienced this a lot
1: and doing what was so clearly something to express love and, and belonging to people. And someone
2: um, used their position. Um, because they were afraid or didn't understand whatever. And it, it was a wrestle at
1: that time because one person, because of the actions, um, she almost didn't make it through that. Her despair was too much to see people that she had relied on removed and, um, And uh, one of the things that I really f- heard from God, it was your greatest calling
2: will never be something that comes from another person. You will know the greatest work you need to do when. In each moment, you have
1: the opportunity to do that. And no matter where you go, no matter what building you're
2: in, no matter what meeting you're in, I'm with you. And if you're willing to show up wherever you show up, I'm with you. And um, that's not always easy because there are a lot of times I just want <laughs> not show up. Um, people have the ability to use their position; they do. And I'm
1: again, I'm not just talking about church communities. They people want to control what they don't understand, and it happens everywhere.
2: But um, Dad was one of the people who brought that wall down, and it took millions of people doing what they do to bring walls down. (laughs) And dad was one of them. He didn't live long enough to see some of the things.
1: (laughs) I don't know if he could have, I think he did imagine that there could be Mormon studies programs everywhere and that some of them would be completely based
2: on belonging and, um, Creating peace in the world. Um, maybe he did. I don't know, but um, he did it anyway, whether he could see results or not. So that was, um, you know, that that's had an effect on me. Um, he uh, his writings
1: really. Reveal he he was willing to be very raw with some of his writings. They are personal essays. Um, he he was willing to reveal his wrestle. Uh, it, there are a lot of paradoxes of faith and intelligence, um, dedication
2: even when it's hard. Uh, um, over and over, it, you know he he
1: talks about. This, this human experience towards divinity, and uh, it's messy. it's It's deep wounds. it's the ministry is about sitting with each other in the pain, not having the answer that's going to get rid of the pain and um, and where that leads you. Um, this is this just doesn't fit into an easily marketed message, and yet that is the essence, I think of of gospel work on the earth. I think it's what Christ calls us into. Inevitably, in an organization, you have to market, you have to brand. That's just the nature of it. And I think we need to learn an understanding that an organization can take care of that administrative, that organization part. And the part that draws us, that brings us into it is the ministering, the messy part, the part that cannot be packaged. Um, I. I have to tell you, I, I, I'm an artist. I really appreciate visual things. And so when, when a logo is changed to something that's limiting, it really riles me. <laughs> At the same time realizing, okay, <laughs> that's that part of it. And the essence really is how is it that we treat each other and how do we create belonging? And that ultimately has to be up to each member to overcome whatever, you know, we're gonna make this look good. We're gonna convince people that they have to be there. And over here, the, the real experience is people come where they feel loved. People come where they want to be. You don't have to talk anyone into being where they feel loved. So if you create that place of being and it happens to be in the, in the church house, people are going to fill them up. If you create a sense of, of being needed and wanted and it's, it's a really messy service project, people are going to show up. Human beings are starving for that. And, um, and seeing how dad could invite people to see that this is a place where you will experience that or where people need that. And so they, they would come and do things they never thought they would do um it's it's pretty extraordinary um i think some of his essays are more pertinent than ever uh i've heard a number of people say you know the talks i used to listen to from general conference just don't talk to me anymore but your dad's essay i see something new there that's now pertinent in my life. This essay here was exactly what I needed. Um, There was this great, um, uh, it it was uh, Patrick Mason's book, Planted, that came out six years ago. And I'd been sent an advanced copy and it was during a really tough time uh, for me with, with some fellow ward members. And I did not even realize it until I opened it. He had a chapter on debt. And um, and then also at the time, I read uh, an, a blog entry by Boyd Peterson about the future of the church. Is Eugene England's vision and uh, talking about you know the, some of the things that were valuable for him that he was reading and learning from things um, Bruce Armstrong had said. And but then as he was moving into other things, he realized the future is alive and not restricted. And and that's, that's what he would gotten from dad's writing. So these things that happen where I see people breathing deeper, because I think that's how we became children of God. Uh, it wasn't a biological process because we've coexisted with God as long as God has existed. This is another really amazing thing about the restoration gospel. It wasn't a biological process. It was, an inspirational process. They, they breathe life into us by inviting us into a deeper existence. And that the most powerful way we can multiply and replenish the earth is by inspiring people to breathe deeper, uh, to live more fully. And that's the godlike process of multiplying and replenishing. And, um, and I say that as, as someone who has given birth, and and has been deeply impacted by that process, but to narrow down our vision of what multiplying and replenishes to something that a, a, a definite minority of the people who have lived on this earth can really experience is really to deny the essential God part of us and how our heavenly parents really gave us life. They invited us, And inspired us, breathed life into us to live um, on this journey that takes us to a new level. Even knowing that it could involve great pain, but it could only work if we wanted to be a part of it. And if we wanted to turn to each other and help each other make it through that, that is greater life. That's deeper breathing. That's, that's more fulfilling existence. And, um, I think that's the life that dad continues to bring. You know, you, you, you can read what he wrote. Some of his talks were recorded. I think one of the most moving was the last talk he gave at BYU. Um, it's really incredible to, to hear him, to listen to that. And to see what is this, is, is this bringing more breath to my thoughts, my options, what I'm willing to take on, how I'm willing to live. And um, in a sense, it's what keeps happening, even in even in the moments of deepest pain and betrayal, being willing to see that God is sitting right there, breathing with me, helping me see it a deeper way to go through this not just see it as someone hurt me they should hurt someone hurt me they're wrong but just this existence of sitting with being one with experiencing with i don't think the atonement is about um paying back i think the atonement and dad taught me this phrase very early on is it's it's an experience of at one um the the power to transform us is that Christ became one with us. Not to pay any scale back, but to have the experience of getting our existence is greater when we get it's with and through everyone. We are one with God, and um, to experience with each other causes us to want to love to want to connect, to be one, and care that what happens to anyone happens to all of us. And that kind of at one moment, is deeply inspiring to lead me on. Um,
2: so his words encourage that to me, sometimes at a great cost. but But time after time, the cost ends up being something that is fleeting. So going to,
1: and I'm not going to lie, you know, it's, it's been hard to realize, well, if I continue with this, this may mean that I won't get recognition or approval from, uh, official channels or something. And, uh, I'm not, you know, that can be really tough. That can be really tough. And, there is really something that, that time after time God keeps leading me into, breathe deeper with me. And especially when there is someone who is on the verge of not wanting to take another breath. And I'm willing to say, I would rather tell you and be a voice that says you belong as much as the person behind the biggest podium in the world
2: And that would be enough to cause them to want to keep breathing. Um, Sometimes those things are worth it. So that, that influence continues. It's this kind of sacred ground.
0: Listeners for me to hear Jody talk um, about her experiences, her insights, and also to talk about her father, who's been gone for 21 years, born in 1933, he would be 89 if he were alive. He would be very much a part of our community and would have another t- two decades of writing. and I'm mourning his loss. And, um, but I'm grateful that his voice continues. Um. Even talking, I feel like, takes away from the spirit. And I, I just, a few things I wrote down, listeners, that as I hear, I love, I, I, I'll just read about four or five paragraphs or sentences that Jody shared. Activism was inherently connected to faith and dedicated the gospel of Jesus Christ. Dad took me to my first rally when I was eight. Um. If you saw a problem, especially when it was causing problems or injustice for people as followers of Christ, you needed to heed the call and make a difference. And I just love the home you were grow, grew up in. And, and I recognize that I sense more of our Gen Z and millennials are wired that way. Um, There's, I don't know if anybody wants, has done the research on this, but I just sense m- this is why I'm so high. Um, in a, in a way, your dads and you are Gen Zs. <laughs> um, <laughs> And millennials, with your worldview and the things you want to make different, and I just look at our younger um, members of the church in general and the community members in general just wanting to make the world a better place and deeply connected to social issues and their lens, the way they view the gospel of Jesus Christ is what is it doing for the most marginalized people in my circle and how can I help them belong? You've used that word over and over again. And so both of you are sort of um, ahead of your time in that, but consistent with Christ. So you're just following G- Christ's example. But I also recognize that um, the dissidence your father, if that's the right word, allowed to have in you has given you tools to navigate dissidence your whole life. And I'm thoughtful of Latter-day Saints that are leaving our church, and I don't want to paint a broad brush, but I wonder sometimes in my morning walks if we'd given them the better tools to manage dissidents or manage paradoxes if they would have the tools to stay. Because I think a lot have a fundamental testimony of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, but just don't know how to handle that. And I remember my personal story is really growing up with no dissidents, <laughs> Um, So I grew up different than Jody. I grew up in the same city. Um, My father's a couple years older than you and alive, and I'm sensitive to the fact that my father's been alive and yours hasn't. And and that's a whole nother discussion on why that happens for some people and doesn't. But I didn't grow up with any dissonance. And the dissonance started when I had priesthood responsibility for a couple of gay men in a YSA ward. And then I sort of, God sort of said, you've just let straight people tell you about gay people. Got to listen to gay people tell you about gay people and sort of um, listen to the complexity of their situation, just like your dad, in way back in 1998, was thinking and talking about this, and that created dissonance. Um, and many of you that are LGBTQ or connected to that, or parents feel that same dissonance. And I always thought the goal, Jody, and this is why you helped me and continue to help me, the goal is to get back to no dissonance. Mm-hmm. And you just laughed. (laughs) Um, And I think that's one of the powers of this podcast. And your dad's work is maybe the goal isn't to get back to no dissonance. And your journey forward as a Latter-day Saint isn't what my journey for the first decades of my life was no dissonance. Mm -hmm. And now I'm grateful for the paradox and the distance. Sometimes I want to go back to that earlier stage, but sometimes I don't because I can reach people in a way that I never could have reached before. And I know there's just, with all the work you're doing, you're doing suicide prevention training. I think you're doing that later today. All the circles you're in or, or this weekend or yeah. something, yeah. Um, there's just a stream of people reaching out to you because they need the tools you have and, and they can talk to you about real things to help them manage the dissidents in their life. And how that's a needed skill within our faith community. So those of you that are in this stage of dissonance, are younger and may not have the long view that Jody and your and your father have, um, I think there's principles. Let me just mention a couple others, then I'm going to get back. Then I'm um, getting agreement, being focused on what you're committed to do. I thought that was a really good one. Uh, yeah, the goal isn't necessarily. Agreement to
1: get... makes no difference. Disagreement makes no difference commitment is what makes a difference that's
0: pretty powerful yeah. um support for people trying to change the world i wrote that down i can't remember the context of that um your greatest call will never come from another person um that's pretty powerful um i don't want to do anything diminished sort of lds tools callings because those are incredibly oh, needed
1: very I don't think very much sp- needed Yeah.
0: But there's often things we're all called to do and ways to serve that are outside an LDS Tools calling. And um, and maybe even an LDS cooled calling doesn't infer it's come from another person because it comes from God. But I think this sort of call things we feel called to do, um, that can be labeled as activism and felt with judgment in our faith community can be really wonderful things to change people's lives.
1: Well, well, for instance, I one of my callings is um I'm a uh, editor of the ward newsletter and I received that calling the month before the shutdown for the pandemic. Wow. And uh, what, it, it, and all of a sudden there were no church meetings that, you know, there were no announcements to put in there, but my greater calling is for people to find belonging connection. So I thought people are going to get this newsletter, whether they go to church or not. And people need to feel connected more than anything. This is, this is a big shift for a lot of people. So I listened to that part of the calling because it definitely wasn't anything that was expected with the basic ward newsletter. And I just heeded a calling to help people connect. And I just used that as one of the tools community resources, how, meeting out on your front porch, um, just, just any number of things to communicate, look, we're still here and we still need to connect and, and know that we can turn to each other. Um, you do not need to wait until someone tells you how to do that. You can seek and look for direction and information as to how to make that happen, no matter what you're calling no matter what. And um, same type of thing. I was an ordinance worker in the Denver Temple and then in the Salt Lake Temple until it closed for remodel. And um, that is a one, as you know, it's a wonderful opportunity to just be someone that clears everything out of the way so people can have their own experience. Um, Too often, people feel like well, I won't know what kind of experience to have until someone tells me. Uh, I need to hear what it means. I need to hear what to think. Um, I need to hear what I'll get. And And my grandpa was in the temple presidency when that annex was being built in the 60s. And he took me into the construction, you know, and he talked about the temple from the time I was a child that this is spiritual theater. This is where you go through a journey every single time and see what symbols tell you about your, where you are. Um, He never, he never, and, and this is how it was taught for his generation, for my dad's, for part of mine. I remember state presidents bringing this up in college wards about the symbolism and, the, the journey that you go on and, and the opportunity to just let the symbolism teach you individually and that they would never say, this is what you're supposed to feel. This is what you're supposed to think, because that's not how ritual works. And so as a worker, I really was there to just clear all distractions out of the way so the person could have their own experience. It was a, an amazing opportunity. Um, I mourn the loss of the live session every single day, every day, because of that. Um, it's it's really hard for me. But I see the value of that. Um, I, I had young people that I taught it in youth programs, and they'd come to me and go, I know I'm supposed to go on a mission. I know it. But how am I going to make it through the temple? How am I going to do that? Um, for various reasons. They didn't like what they were told. Um, this is something I appreciated about dad. If we just respect young people, <laughs> instead of telling them what to think, ask them, what kind of experience are you having? What do you want to share with me? What, what are you looking for? Instead of, well, you need to, you should. So I'd listen to young people who were not going to go through the temple. And I just just told them basic stuff about how symbolic ritual works.
2: I said, don't worry. Don't worry about what's true. Don't worry about what you're supposed to think. Just see what's there for you.
1: That's all. And they're still going. This is 10 years later. They're still going. And they'll tell me, they'll say, I have a love-hate relationship with the temple. Sounds perfect. (laughs) Sounds absolutely perfect. A ritual is, is
2: there for you to learn. And, um, there, you know, there are enough things in life that are difficult and wounding and harmful.
1: Um, I think we can go a long way to, to stop doing that with our uh, fear. If we can if we can listen to people about where they're struggling and hurting and say, I'm here with you, that must be hard. I don't have an answer and you're on a journey and I'm on a journey. Maybe we can just remind each other we're not alone. That gives that respects people to find their way through something.
0: Will you tell our listeners the names of these two biographies that were written last year, the author and the names?
1: So, Terrell gonna- Givens, it's uh, Stretching the Heavens, and uh, Christine Hagland, it's Eugene England, a Mormon liberal. And um, I think both of them are valuable. People say, which, which is your favorite? And I go, there could be 50 biographies of Dad, and each one would have something valuable, and each of these is different and has something of value and And so, I highly recommend both of them. Um, I've been rereading Christine's lately and and uh, really kind of caught up in that and again, and but i I just I really think they're both valuable. Um, one thing that I find interesting about stretching the heavens is it really is Terrell giving his perspective on Dad's life, which i I think is an important one. He's dealing with um, some really interesting experiences in in how he observes that. Christine is also sharing um, so much about dad's writing and, and his process for that. And I, I just find that really uh, very valuable to read.
2: You've done
0: this already, but talk to, I'm back to my millennial friends and Gen Z friends that are, and there's other people, I'm a baby boomer listening, that are trying to figure out a way to stay in the church with the dissonance they feel on xxx X, X issue and i'm sure you've had hundreds of these conversations just just and you've already sort of done this but just general principles in closing you'd give to someone that says my goal is actually to find an authentic way to stay in the church i just can't reconcile this this or this so i'm not sure i can stay
1: um i don't like the word stay good yeah. uh, I, I i don't think that uh aligns with what i find inspiring about the gospel at all i i find i keep coming back to create and move forward so a lot of times people think well, well if i'm that's moving that's
0: really powerful by yeah. the way what you just said thank you
1: I, I i just i i don't find much value in in feeling like you've got to stay because move that's move
0: forward is i love that yeah. so much better than staying
1: well, and unfortunately, a lot of times people assume, well, if I'm moving forward, I'm, I'm leaving my community. Uh, well, I
2: don't know.
1: But to me, no matter what community or group I'm involved in, it involves me creating an experience and a journey. And a journey involves moving forward. And I see involvement in any community as being something that requires you to be a part of how that community is created. And the greatest things that I've experienced in my church community all throughout my life have not been because a a single entity that is somehow seen as monolithic and only says or does one thing, it occurs because of the individuals that make up that community. And I'm one of them. And just as someone might in, it's really tough for me to keep coming back to, please remember each person is doing the best they can. Um,
2: Even though I see sometimes what people are doing are causing tremendous harm. We cannot make a difference without sharing our stories. We cannot make
1: a difference without creating an experience in whatever way we create that in the community. Now, I'm not saying the only way to do that is to stay involved in the way you've always been involved. I am saying consider there are new ways for you to be a part of
2: any community. Only you can see how to create that. How I
1: am involved in participating in my community, any community, including the church today, is not what it was yesterday or last year or 10 years ago. And it is not what it will be tomorrow. That's what creation is. If... Oh, and in fact, this was a discussion in a Sunday school class recently. Really, really, really great Sunday school teacher. I've had the worst ever Sunday school teachers and I've had really phenomenal Sunday school teachers. So, but um, he was saying, uh, why do you come to church? And again, there were the the textbook answers just like, um, you need to, you know, you promise to and, and all this. And, And I said, yeah, I get that. Um, I don't feel the need to. Uh, I'm not doing it uh, because I promise you, because I don't feel inspired by that. I come for the adventure. Because the person I say I want to be is someone who is not buffeted by... Someone being different from me or something, but that requires practice to really own and create my own journey, uh, does not happen in a vacuum and showing up at church where some pretty complex things and diverse opinions are expressed about deeply seated, uh, thoughts is a great adventure in practicing. Can I see God in this person? Wow can i invite the experience of christ in this place and sometimes it's sublime it's it's pretty incredible what's invited when when i see some people
2: share a wrestle and a burden and inherently people rally and hold them up knowing there are differences Uh, that's an adventure
1: when um, something happens where it's just really really tough and I might need to walk out of the room
2: and then someone is in the hall who's weeping and doesn't know how they're going to make it through the day and all I get to do is just stand there and hug them. I don't know what's going on. That's an adventure. But it's not um, the, the way it was
1: in, in the past. So I don't stay. And I think young people really want to create. Agreed. And in them is the power to completely transform. We need to step away from thinking our faith experience or our faith community has to be transactional, which means check it off. Do this and check it off and get this. Transforming is a deeply mindful, Christ-like. I mean, what's more transformative?
2: than being taken down from a cross dead and presenting yourself as alive later. Christ invites us to transform over and over and over. And that's not
1: staying, that's creating. And I would love to see, you know, Clearly, there are going to be times when it's just like, oh gosh, I can't do this today. That's fine. That's fine. But I think if we can practice in our communities, because I think faith communities are places to practice. They are not the end. Um, Not once am I ever thinking that when we're greeted somewhere here
2: or in the next life, God is ever going to say how many times did you go to sacrament meeting at all. I don't think
1: that's it. I think it's a really great place to practice and have an adventure in transforming. And that's my invitation.
2: I don't care how, what, what, how young you are, what generation you are. That's my invitation. Practice creation. Well, listeners, we're signing off, even though I don't want to. And I think Jody could come on
0: another podcast and just feed us. I'm so glad we did this, Jody. I'm personally fed. I've learned things. I will forever um, reframe the question, how do I stay versus how do I move forward and how do I create? There's so much more power in that. There's so much more thoughtfulness in that. It's So much more my ability to grow the community. That was a beautiful segment. I wish your dad were here to hear you. Um, I'm tenderhearted for your dad who's not here. Maybe he can hear you. Maybe he's very aware of the work you're doing and it brings him great peace. I think of people on the other side of the veil and, and I know he misses you and the rest of his posterity, but I have to think you honor him with your personal life the things you're doing, the lives you're saving, and it's great peace to him to see. I think one of the greatest gifts we give to people that are gone is that we remember them by the way we live our lives and the principles that we've been taught. We then bless other people through the things, and that may be one of the greatest gifts you're giving your good father. Listeners will list, link to both of these biographies by Christine Haglin and Terrell Givens. About Eugene England. We'll also check out eugeneengland.org. Um, but on half, half of all of our listeners, Jody, thank you for this podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. This is a pleasure.
0: So, Richard Osler and Jody England Hansen signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.